All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry. And as always, if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and setting up a donation right there. Another way to support it is by uh, setting up a donation through the Listener's Commentary Study Hub, and the Study Hub gives you access to all my online courses, as well as an ever-increasing amount of resources to go along with the audio to help you dig in and study the Bible for yourself. So, Visit listenerscommentary.com, check out the Study Hub, and some of the other resources there. All right, let's jump into this recording. In this session, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And we are winding down the book of Hebrews. At this point in the book, the author is really providing just a series of Uh, challenges and exhortations based on everything he said about Jesus as the Messiah. And so in the first part of chapter 12, he's called the original audience to run the race of faith with endurance. He's challenged them to endure their sufferings as like discipline and training from the Lord that's going to help them grow to maturity. And he's really uh, called them to strengthen each other for this race, told them to pursue peace and holiness. And now here in verses 18 through 29, what he does is he's going to provide really a motivational appeal for that, a basis for that. Like, why should you run with endurance? Why should you endure? Why should you uh, encourage each other and build each other up and strengthen each other and all those things? Why should you do it? Well, it has to do with the significance and the seriousness of what we're involved in as the people of God. And so this is what he says, beginning in Hebrews 12, verse 18. He begins with four, right? Explaining, giving a basis. Four, he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, for they could not cope with the command, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Now, interesting imagery and language, but it's all a reference to the events of the giving of the Old Testament law, which took place at Mount Sinai. As he has gone through this whole book, this whole last section of the book of Hebrews has really been showing the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant to Moses and the old covenant. And so here he just takes a bunch of the imagery from the giving of the law and the old covenant. And this imagery derives from both the description in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you go back to Exodus 19 and and Deuteronomy 4, read those, you'll see these kinds of descriptions. A mountain that couldn't be touched, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind. Uh, You'll see a reference to the blast of the trumpet in Exodus 19 and 20, uh, the sound of words in Deuteronomy 4, uh, the people just not being able to endure it and being overwhelmed. Even the command that he quotes here, if a beast touches the mountain, that's from Exodus 19 verses 12 and 13. And and so he, he just takes all this imagery from Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4 that refers to the 
really the overwhelming nature of the giving of the Old Testament law. What's the point of all this description? Well, once again, the author of Hebrews is engaging in a lesser to greater sort of argument. And the way it's going to work here is, if this physical mountain, Mount Sinai, was such a spectacle, and if it brought so much holy fear, and if the consequences of violating the covenant that were made there were so great, well, then what about if you come to a greater mountain? That's where he's going. And so he begins this section with this uh, very descriptive picture of the events at Mount Sinai. And notice that he begins the description of those events with, you haven't come to a mountain like that. That's not the mountain you have come to. Well, what kind of mountain have you come to? Well, that's where he goes in verse 22. So look what he says. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who is enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is the mountain you've come to. So the first description with the darkness and gloom and all that, that's Mount Sinai, but you haven't come to that mountain, he says in verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion. And so we should think of this as a contrast picture. Uh, the Mount Sinai scene, verses 18 through 21, and then here in verses 22 through 24, the Mount Zion scene. The Apostle Paul actually uses the same two mountains in contrast in Galatians chapter 5. There, Paul is making the point that the followers of the Messiah are the true Jerusalem, the true Mount Zion. Here, the picture is a little bit different, but the point really is the same. He says, That's, this is the mountain you've come to. And it's Mount Zion. What's Mount Zion? Well, originally, Mount Zion referred to a mountain in southwest Jerusalem. And then it later came to be associated with just Jerusalem itself and even the temple itself. Uh, and then in the Psalms and the prophets, Mount Zion was pictured as like the city of the living God and of God's people. Uh, so it now has come full significance to it. It's not just the physical location of Jerusalem. It re really refers to the new Jerusalem, as he's going to say in what follows. Look at the two phrases that follow it that really describe what he has in mind by Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This indicates that the author is talking about the eschatological city of God, the end times community of God's people, the new Jerusalem. And so he calls it the heavenly Jerusalem here. This is the city of fulfillment. It's actually pictured in the book of Revelation as the very dwelling place of God that will be relocated to the new earth in the restoration of all things. Listen to these words from Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this is that imagery here that we see in other places in the New Testament. We're talking about uh, the the city, the final, ultimate Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven to the new earth. And in the book of Hebrews, it's probably correct to connect this with the city that the author has mentioned several times since chapter 11, the city that the people of faith looked forward to and that they are still looking forward to until that final day mentioned there in Revelation 21.
The author continues on in his description saying, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, what else have you come to? Well, you've come to myriads of angels and the general assembly. This particular translation that I'm reading from separates myriads of angels and general assembly into two different things, but most scholars say the best way to take it is to take them together in the sense of myriads of angels in general assembly. Like this, the general assembly is the description of the angels all gathered together. And that word translated general assembly is from a word that means joyful or festive gathering. In fact, in the broader Roman world of the day, it actually referred to even like civic celebrations, athletic competitions where everyone's together in festive or joyful gathering. Well, that's the idea. So you have angels together in joyful assembly. He also mentions the church of the firstborn. Remember the word church doesn't refer to a building or a place. It first and foremost refers to an assembly, a gathering, a congregation of people. So you have angels gathered together in joyful assembly, and you have the gathering of the firstborn. And the firstborn is a description of God's people in Christ. In fact, the word firstborn in the Greek is plural here. It refers to the people of the Messiah who are described here as the firstborn, and their names are recorded in heaven, he says. You've also come to God, the judge of all people, and to the spirits of righteous people made perfect or complete. Think of all the Old Testament saints that were listed in chapter 11 that were looking forward to what was to come, and now they've arrived at their goal, and they've been perfected or completed because they've entered into glory. You've also come, he says, to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant and everything he described in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about that, and to the sprinkled blood, which refers to the blood of the new covenant sprinkled in heaven that's described in 9 and 10. Um, and he says that sprinkled blood speaks better than the blood of Abel, uh, probably referring back to uh, the mention of Abel at the beginning of chapter 11 when he talked about Abel's blood crying out for justice or vindication. Well, from that first moment until the time period of Jesus, all the cries for God to bring vindication and justice to the world, well, now it's come in the person of Jesus. And that's the idea. All of this description is meant to emphasize the significance of the present time, that this is the culmination of the ages. We've moved from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment in the Messiah. This is the greater mountain that Christians have come to. And so he says, in view of that, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. That's verse 25. God is the one speaking, and he speaks through Jesus. Um, the book of Hebrews open with God is the one who speaks. And then the author has argued that he speaks through his son and he's made that clear. And so don't refuse him. Make sure you're listening and you don't reject that. In view of how significant this is and to the time period we're living in. And then he gets to the lesser to greater moment where he's been working up to this. And he says this, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth at that physical mountain, at Mount Sinai, if they didn't escape, if there were consequences for that experience, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. This is the idea of 
Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion, uh, earthly Jerusalem versus the heavenly Jerusalem. And since now he, he speaks to us as the one from heaven, um, we need to make sure we listen to him. And he goes on in verse 26 to say, And his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this paints a contrast between the shaking of the earth at Mount Sinai and the giving of the Old Covenant with the final shaking that will lead to the restoration of all things. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, it refers to the earth shaking at Mount Sinai. So the author takes that imagery from that and uses the language of Haggai, prophet of the Old Testament, Haggai 2, verse 6, that speaks of a more complete shaking in the future. In Haggai's original context, it's connected with the building of the temple and actually provides a word of encouragement to the people post-exile who are trying to build the temple. But like so many of the Old Testament prophets, its message clearly goes beyond its original context to an ultimate fulfillment in the future. What suggests that ultimate fulfillment in the book of Haggai? Well, in Haggai chapter 2, the promise is that God will shake all the nations and they will come with offerings for the temple. That didn't happen in Haggai's day. It wouldn't happen for a long time. And not only that, in verse 22 of Haggai 2, it mentions that God will judge all the nations and overthrow the kingdoms. And so it's about Haggai's day, but it looks beyond Haggai's day to the ultimate future when the new Jerusalem will come. And that's what the author of Hebrews is is recognizing, and that's why he mentions Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 here, when he says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's talking about the ultimate fulfillment in the new earth, when earth and heaven will be united once and for all forever, and God's presence will fill the world and all of that. And so the author explains then in verse 27 what he's thinking of by regards to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. He says, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, earthly things, physical things, fallen things that can be shaken uh, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And so this refers to the the end of all things, the consummation of the kingdom of God, when all things are made new and earth and heaven are one, that's what it's referring to. There's going to come a time when nothing left can be shaken away. All that remains is uh, the new earth and heaven and united as one. That's the kingdom that the Messiah now at the present time has inaugurated, hasn't completed it yet, but he's inaugurated. And so the author of Hebrews says in verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, since right now in the presence we enter into the Messiah's kingdom, this, this final ultimate kingdom that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth, since we receive that kingdom, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so his final appeal here in, in this paragraph is, let's respond with gratitude. Uh, that's how we, we give acceptable worship to God. That's how we show proper reverence and awe for the greatness and the majesty and the holiness of God, because our God is a consuming fire. And the implication in, in that is that 
God does judge those who are unfaithful. Um, that there at uh, Mount Sinai, uh, God came down in fire and, and warned the people and it created fear and trembling. Well, God hasn't changed. And so even though we've come to a new kingdom, God is still this holy, majestic, consuming fire. And so let's respond to him with uh, reverence and awe and gratitude for everything that he's done for us in Christ.